just through through aligning our hearts and minds with your with your will in Christ's name. Amen. I uh, I am really bad at finishing projects. You'll notice the one who laughed the loudest was my wife. Um, I. Uh, <laughs> that's enough out of you, Big D. That's. <laughs> um, I. <laughs> I. I get I get an idea and I get excited about it and I start working on it and and um, you know once everything gets moving and and everything is underway I I really personally I struggle with just like finishing does that make sense I'm not the only one here who does this right I <laughs> you feel free to point because I'm the only one putting myself out there at the moment Jeremy's in the back if you need to point at him um, <laughs> I. Uh, I, I years ago I bought um, I bought a car. Actually, I had several conversations about classic cars uh, this week, and I, I bought a, a Fiat Spider for like three hundred dollars. I mean, it was just there was not much to it, and I I started doing body work, you know, sanding it and everything else, and I started fiddling around with the the fuel pump was bad, and started putting a fuel pump in, and I started that up, and and I was able to get it started, but it wouldn't idle, and I figured out what the problem was. But at the same time as I was doing that, I realized that the floorboards were rusted. And so I got a sawzall and I started sawing out the floorboards because it makes sense to start a new project when you haven't finished the first one. Um, and, and while doing that, I learned an important thing about Fiat's that fuel line and brake lines are inside the passenger compartment, I guess in case they leak so you can set yourself on fire easier. <laughs> but I, I, while I was cutting out these panels, I, I cut the brake line. My, my wife didn't. <laughs> it's funny. It's my car. Anyway. Um, and I, I got frustrated and I started quit that project and started a different one on the car. And then I ran out of gas when I got overwhelmed by how many things I had started and, and hadn't finished. And I, I, in frustration, I backed up and then Abby was born and I sold the car because I knew I was never going to finish it. And it's kind of the story of my life. I get excited about something. I get started and it doesn't get done, right? And, and um, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. My wife could probably offer a few more um, out of love because it's what makes me special and unique. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. It's true. Um, so as we come into this chapter of Nehemiah, I'm opening with this because Nehemiah in the previous chapter, like he starts out, he's building a wall around the city. And in the previous chapter, he finished. That wall was done. The doors were hung up. And then all of a sudden, diplomatic relations started because the neighbors who were trying to stop the wall building suddenly realized there was a new power in the community and they actually had to make nice with them. And so they went from trying to prevent the wall to trying to be friends, right? Um, and, and so there's this transition that happened in the previous chapter. And as we start in on this chapter, Nehemiah having done part of it turns around and realizes there's more project to be done. Got it? There, the, the work isn't done just because the wall is done. And so um, as we dive into this, this um, chapter, I'm going to tell you we're only going to read part of it. I, I usually make it a point to read everything. Like I want to put the entire word of God in front of you. But like from verse 10 to like verse 70, I said 70 is genealogy. And, and I could do it, but we'll have to do it later after service is over because I would literally just be reading for the next 20 minutes. Um, 
So um, the project is done. One of the things that happened in the first chapter, which would be about two months ago now, um, Nehemiah is doing his job as like the king's cupbearer, and a man comes and, and visits with him, and it's Nehemiah's brother. And the brother basically tells Nehemiah, hey, the city is wrecked and they need help. And it's sort of assumed that Nehemiah, like that his brother knew what was going to happen, and that he went to Nehemiah because he figured that Nehemiah would jump in and do something about it, and that he's kind of working behind the scenes to make things happen. Everybody with me? And so he's going to turn up again in this chapter. So heads up, that's who he is. The project is done. The enemies are trying to be friends now. Um, and we're going to dive into one and two. Uh, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So uh, he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So the project is done. The gates are hung. The doors are locked. And there's two things in this verse. Watch this. The first thing is um, he picks out gatekeepers, singers, and Levites. That's a little weird, because like you would expect to have gatekeepers, right? But I don't vi- visit many cities with singers at the gate. I mean, it's really not a, not a, I don't know, it's not a common feature in the ancient world. And Levites were priests. So, like, why does he mention picking out the priests? Well, there's kind of an interesting, like, idea here. The word gate- gatekeeper that's, that's used, it's generally used in association with the temple. And so, actually, he's saying all of the temple personnel had been selected. And the implication is that these guys normally would work in the temple, and instead of working in the temple, he pulls them away and puts them at the, at the gates. He says, okay, this is your normal job, but today you're going to guard the city. And so, like, when you arrived in Jerusalem, you had guards and lots of them. And there's a good reason. I mean, these guys were building these, these walls with swords, in, like, sword in one hand and, like, hammer in the other because the neighbors were threatening to come and kill them. Um, None of my neighbors do that now. It's wonderful. But if they did, I would probably be ready. Um, I I think uh, some folks keep a handgun or a rifle around the front door just in case a coyote shows up. Um, I think John told an interesting story about that that I'm not going to share. But anyway, um, I I visited the – they're not here, so I can can throw them out there – the – um, Sherry, Sherry's house, and she's got a cattle prod by her front door. <laughs> um, and the gatekeepers and singers like raise their voices to prepare for the message. Um, so, <laughs> what what would happen is the gatekeepers um, they didn't have enough guards, and so like people would show up at the city, and these gatekeepers who were normally protecting the temple. We're at the front door protecting the city because Nehemiah realized having a wall is wonderful. Having a wall with nobody to guard it ain't a whole lot of point there, is it? You know, like uh, um, if you have a gate in front of your house and it's, it's not locked, then you basically have like a nice entryway for people to come through. Um, and so like Nehemiah starts out, he sets up guards. And there's actually kind of a little theological thing here, right? And this is worth noting. Um, God's people, the Jewish people, their job in the world, 
right? If you read through the Old Testament, it's over and over again. They were supposed to tell the world about God. That was their job. And um, they were supposed to live lives of worship to God. Like, that's why all of these crazy laws in the Old Testament are there. They're to teach the people how to worship God with everything in their lives. And so Nehemiah, like being a very clever guy, um, says, well, wait a minute. I'm going to go ahead and remind the people what they're here for, and I'm going to have guards on the gates at the same time. That's very clever, right? Very practical. Um, So he sets up guards. He's got folks guarding the city. um, And then he turns around and he appoints two guys to be governor over it. Because Nehemiah has enough going on, he's not going to administrate the city. Got it? He is smart enough to delegate. And the people he chooses, the first one is his brother, which, you know... Say what you want. It's, it's, it was very common, like in the ancient world, to hire family members. But we, we know three things about his brother that are important here. First off, he was faithful and he was God-fearing, right? So when Nehemiah looked for people and he said, who is going to keep an eye on my city? And mind you, this is in context. Like two chapters earlier, there was a whole discussion about how every governor previous had basically cheated the citizens out of, out of money and stolen their children to be slaves and stuff like that. So Nehemiah looks around, and what he looks for is honest and, um, and, and like, I mean, basically somebody who's right before God. Um, and so the, the leaders that he picks are people that he can trust, people who, that, that he can trust because they are, they're right before God. And I would suggest a step further, that Hanani had come to Nehemiah previously and said, hey, the city's in trouble. He traveled quite a ways to do it. And he told him, hey, the city's in trouble. It shows that he had concern over the people, right? Because why would he bother doing that if he, you know, there were lots of people in the city who had means and resources, and most of them went to outside nations and made contracts with enemies as a way of profiting from the situation. Hanani risks his life to, like, help. And so he's probably a pretty good choice. Um, We're going to be talking a little bit about leadership in church um, today. And, and one of the things that's huge here, one of the things that's huge is um, folks who are leaders shouldn't necessarily all be my brother because he lives a long way away, um, but they should be God-fearing, right? And they should care deeply about the folks in the church, right? Um, you get into trouble when you find folks who are not living that way. Um, as a primary drive of their existence, but they're put in charge of other folks. Um, the name that jumps into my head is Jim Baker. You guys know who he is? Jim Baker was a man who preached on TV and made a gajillion dollars off it, you know, and, and didn't really do a whole lot to help people, but did a whole lot to help himself. Um, and there are a lot of folks like that in, in the church's history, and, and I think Nehemiah gives us a good principle here, but we're going to keep going. Um, And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guards, let them be shut and bar bar the doors. Appoint guards from amongst the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. So he says, all right, we got two rules here, folks. First off, the gates are not always open. That makes sense, right? Um, What he means by when the sun is hot, it could be two things, and there's like books written on this, which is crazy because it's, you know, not that big a deal, but it's either that do not open the front gates of the city until the sun is high up in the sky, right? 
Um, that way, if everybody in the city is sleeping in the morning, you wait until everybody's out of bed before you open the front door. That way, if somebody shows up to fight, everybody's ready, right? The other possibility is, it's possible it means the opposite, because it's kind of ambiguous in the phrasing. It could mean, hey guys, open the gates in the morning, keep them open until it gets hot in the middle of the day, and then shut them. Why would you shut the gates in the middle of the day? Are you guys generally more attentive once it's hot and you've eaten lunch? <laughs> Not really, right? That's when sleepy time happens. Right, Michael? <laughs> um, and so, like he says, listen, when you are most alert, then have the gates open. But once your alertness starts to fall, fall off, shut them. Either way, there's actually something pretty valuable to, to be gleaned from this. The wall, the structure is only valuable if folks are paying attention, right? If folks are on top of it, if folks are chasing after what needs to get done, if folks are keeping track, it only works um, it only works if people are paying attention. And then they appointed guards. So they augmented the guards that were already there because they wanted a lot of guards on the walls, right? I always think of, uh, well, never mind. I'm not going to rabbit trail on that. Um, they wanted a lot of guards, and they picked people who lived in the city because they have a vested interest, right? They have a good reason to make sure the city doesn't get sacked, and that's because their families live there. I, mean, I would you know, be pretty serious if my family lived in a city that might get attacked. And so they've got the, the temple guard folks, and then you've got the citizens. And the citizens are watching, and they're also watching their houses. Now, here's why. If something went wrong and the city was, like, broken into, um, you would want somebody aware to let everybody know it's time to pay attention, right? Um, you would want somebody whose job it was to be on top of security, you would want somebody who, you know, was ready to pull everyone in. And some of these ancient houses, like, you could bar them up and, and at least hold tight for a little bit, right? And so, like, like, there was some containment going on there. But he says, listen, guys, pay attention to your home. Pay attention to your city, right? Like, you guys are guarding it. There's a point to all this. Don't worry. I'm not just talking about city administration because I don't find that interesting at all. Um, four to five. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Um, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Um, so he, all right, the walls are protected, and he turns around, and they're protecting a big empty space. Right? That's a problem. Um, it's a problem for a handful of reasons. First off, you cannot have like, any kind of economic prosperity without people. Does that make sense? Nobody to, like, buy food, nobody to work in the factory, nobody to nothing. Like, ain't no money coming in. Um, the other end of that is, generally, if a city was attacked, who protected it? People in God and the people inside. Um, and so he turns around and says, well, wait a minute, the city's empty. <laughs> so we've got to do something about this. And so he starts, the next few chapters, we're going to see him begin to rebuild the people of the city and grow the population, right? He recognizes, and so he begins in a very systematic way by taking a census. So, all right, let's count everyone and see what we got. Um, and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came, came up at first, and I found written in it. Um, so he sets out to do the genealogy, and then he discovers, oh, look, this was done already. We have a book. 
and, and the book is everybody. Um, and these were people of the province who came up out of captivity with those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. And they returned to Jerusalem and Jer- Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, uh, Ramiah, Nehemiah, uh, Mordecai, Bilshem, Mispereth, Bigvi, uh, Nehem, and Bena. And I included those in there just to remind you there's a reason I'm not reading the whole list. Everybody got it? But also because he turns around and he says, listen, um, these are the folks who are here, but they didn't all show up at once. They came in waves. God brought people back in waves. It was not one man. It wasn't Zerubbabel who brought a whole lot of folks back, right? And he's kind of credited with bringing the first wave back. But that guy didn't do everything, right? There's like like nine names there, ten names there. So over the years, there were like a whole bunch of people who brought people into this city. It was not the effort of one man. Um, why does this matter? It is very easy to assume that one person will do the work. Um, in churches, small churches especially, there's a, a, a pattern that takes place. And in seminary, they, they have this class on how to not lose your job. I mean, that's what the class really is. They call it something fancier. I don't even remember what it was because after a certain point, I realized the whole class was how to not screw up and lose your job and ruin the people you're in in contact with, right? And um, basically the idea is um, if you do everything, and small churches sometimes do that, they'll look at the pastor and say, hey, we pay you, so you do everything, right? And that's actually the pattern of a dying church, Um, that minister will be there for a very short period of time. He will do everything, and then he will either get burnt out and leave, right? Or he'll, like, become a tyrant, right? Or he will, um, you know, draw off himself too much and, like, do something morally reprehensible. That happens sometimes where guys just stretch themselves out and they, like, fall apart because they're not, like, held up proper. Everybody with me? Um, And so the idea is, hey, everybody needs to be a part of this. Like, it is not one man's job. One man ain't doing it. Everybody, everybody, everybody is a part of it. Um, This is a tough beginning because there's a lot to talk about. Um, And it's easy to turn it into something that it isn't, right? I'm not going to allegorize this. I'm going to look for, we're going to talk about some principles. And we're going to talk about how they apply to the church. Everybody with me? Everybody awake still? (laughs) Um, if you're not awake let me know Jim Um, (laughs) sorry (laughs) Um, first off we are not here to build a wall to protect God's church right my job is not to keep a wall around this place and keep it safe my job is not to go out and make sure that like like those mean people in the in the government and these mean people in in the movie industry don't ruin us like that's not what we're doing okay We are not building structures. Even the building we are in, right, this physical space is not the church. And there's this mindset, wait a minute, this is the church. I came to church. I am here. That's not the case. You people are the church. We do not build this place up for any reason other than forwarding the work we do with y'all. Do you understand me? If y'all ain't growing, we ain't doing our job. If you are not maturing spiritually, if you are not like, 
like walking in your faith, if it is not becoming vital and real to you, the job is not getting done. And I've talked about this over and over again. The job of the church is to make disciples and to share the gospel, right? This is what we do. Um, And so we're going to have a look at some of what is going on here um, um, as we apply this passage. Um, But first off, like like we're going to – actually, I'll back up. Am I going to be able – oh, yeah, it's working. Okay. Um, If we were going to apply some of these ideas, first off, as we pick leaders in the church, sometimes there's a habit where leaders are picked based on their willingness to do it. Right? Hey, that guy will do it. Um, And that's a bad habit. Um, Ideally, leaders would be people who are driven, people who take God seriously and love the folks around them. Right? Um, When you don't do that, you wind up with folks who rise into leadership positions who, like, power monger in the church. We're blessed because we don't have that, right, that I know of. Um, But there are churches where one guy does all the giving and he controls the place. And if he doesn't like a song on Sunday morning, that guy didn't get to lead worship anymore. And and that's not right. The church exists for a different purpose than our comfort. Um, Leaders um, are people who are God-fearing and people who um, literally care about the people. Um, How does that play out? Well, um, there are only so many actual positions of leadership in the church. Um, The better position for a leader in the church is discipleship. Everybody with me? Discipleship is the process of growing in your faith. Discipleship is the process of pairing up with another believer who is more mature than you and learning how to do it. I, when I worked at the children's home, I had uh, my first day of work. There was a gal named Jennifer Fultz, who is a very good friend of, of our family. Actually, we still interact with them. Her husband's a Church of God pastor. It's how I ended up in the Church of God in the first place, right? And I interact with with these guys. The first day at work there, though, Jennifer told me everything I needed to do throughout the day. And so she would say, Eric, come over here and deal with these kids. Eric, take these kids out to the playground. Eric, (laughs) go make dinner. Eric, you know, and I would, yes, Jennifer, yes, Jennifer, yes, Jennifer. And I, I assumed, like, she knew what she was doing, and I learned how to do the job by talking to her for a while. After I'd been there for three months, and I assumed she knew everything for three months, I found out she'd been there about two weeks longer than I had. (laughs) What's the point of that? Well, for starters, people who take on disciples just need to know more than the person they're teaching, right? There's an assumption I cannot impact anyone else. If you know more, if you are closer to Jesus, if you advanced in your faith, like, you're in a spot where you can help other folks grow, right? Um, how does that play out? Well, actually, one of the best things I've learned about discipleship in the last month, I learned from, from Alcoholics Anonymous. That's a funny thing, isn't it? Um, in AA, people show up, and they, they go to these meetings, and they talk about their feelings, and they read a book over and over again, this whole book, and then they apply that book to their lives as a way of quitting something, right? Um, and there's this saying, like, like I, I did, I've done addictions counseling and work for years and years and years, and there's this saying in AA where it's like, well, look, if you want to be successful, show up and find somebody to teach you how to do it right, right? And they call them sponsors. You find a sponsor, and the sponsor, when you have a bad day, what do you do? You call him, and he tells you what to do. Um, if you're trying to, like, learn stuff, you call your sponsor, and your sponsor says, oh, read this chapter of the book, and you'll do it. And people find sponsors because they 
really, really, really don't want to be what they were. A lot of times you talk to people who are in AA and they'll say, I did not want to do that. Did not want to talk to someone about this. I did not want to make phone calls to anyone. I did not want to. But in the end, like they did it because they more didn't want to be drunk. (laughs) And so they would do this. In the church, I mean, this is just based on the church's model for discipleship. When you grow as a Christian, you grow as a Christian by attaching to another person and talking to them, right? And when you hate your neighbor, anybody ever hate their neighbor? I don't hate my neighbors right now, actually. I have great neighbors here. Um, When we were in Indiana, we had neighbors that would scream and shout and cuss at each other in the driveway at 2 in the morning. And I remember how much Abby, being three months old, loved that. (laughs) Not at all, right? My neighbors, oh, I got up in the morning and they're like, oh, those people. Those people. Can't they just be quiet? Can't they go to bed like normal people? Can't they? And, like, I had folks I talked to. I would say, hey, you know what? I'm having trouble with this neighbor. You praying for him? All right, I'll do that. (laughs) <laughs> are you engaging them? I guess I could do that too. Are you doing that? All right, I'll do that because I wanted to be a better believer more than I wanted to burn their house down. But only just. Um, as believers, we become something more by attaching to other folks because we desire, we hunger to be better like at this. What does it mean to be better at this? I sin. Anybody else sin? I, uh, I, for many years, and this is quite a while ago, I would lie when it was easier to tell the truth. I had told so many lies over the years that I'd gotten comfortable and used to it, and I would just, you know, and sometimes I'd be talking to someone, and I'd be like, why am I making this up? This don't even make any sense. Why would I even do that? Like, this is dumb. <laughs> but I just keep going. Um, and the crazy thing is that I didn't learn to not lie until I started talking to folks about it. And they taught me how to own up to it, which is awful. When you stop and you say, you know what, that wasn't true. Hold on, let me tell you the truth. Um, but it changed my heart and it changed how I walked and it made me closer to Jesus, right? I was pretty far away then and I'm closer now. Um, by learning to do those things different. And it was other folks holding me accountable and praying with me and talking to me and directing me to read the scriptures that made that happen. Did that person need to be like, uh, like the Apostle Paul to teach me to do that? Not really, right? Most folks accumulate a base knowledge that is more than enough to help people grow. Um, so we have leaders that are picked out. We have people that are that are um, set on the walls, um, and they're people who live in the city. Who are the best folks to lead a church to grow, to lead the body of Christ in a community to grow is us, right? The fact of the matter is I, don't live in, or I didn't live in this community three years ago, right? Did I three? It's about three, four years ago I did not live in this community, right? Um, anybody grow up here? Anybody have neighbors that you've watched drift away from their faith in Christ? Or sit in a pew collecting dust for the last 10 years? Um, anybody ever sit down and say, hey, can I walk with you for a while and talk about Jesus and, like, maybe we could grow together? That's the job, right? It's not a title I give you. It's not something I come along and say, this is what you need to do. Discipleship happens when someone who is slightly more mature attaches to someone who's less mature and grows them. Um, i got a couple passages related to this. 
Ephesians 4, 11 to 17. Thank you for reminding me, Donald, Big D, that we are running a little long. I'll try to be fast. Um, And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the, the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." That is a lot of words, but watch this. Apostles were people who knew Jesus and learned his teaching directly and then taught it to people. The prophets were people who talked to God and then turned around and said, guys, this is what we're doing wrong. We need to get our act together. That's what prophets did. They weren't fortune tellers. They weren't anything else. They were, hey, we're screwing up. Let's do better, right? Um, Evangelists went out and preached. Um, shepherds and teachers were pastors, basically, and teachers. And these were folks who led the church, helped people to grow in their faith, and taught about Jesus. We have a series of things that are all about helping individuals grow in their faith, right? The Holy Spirit sort of endowed these folks in the beginning, and Jesus taught them. They taught other folks. They taught other folks, and the church grew that way. Um, We, as God's people, here's how we grow. Um, There are folks here who teach. Right? Actually, Ann, and um, I'm going to draw a blank now and act like an idiot. Jeff and uh, Jeremy, and there are a handful of folks who teach classes, right? But there are folks here who know more Bible than other folks here have ever, you know, or excuse me, have forgotten more Bible than other folks here have ever learned, right? Um, Those folks are teachers who ain't teaching if they ain't teaching, right? Well, I don't want to run a class. Well, can you sit down and have lunch with someone? Maybe once a week? Hmm. Can you ask hard questions? Hard questions are no fun, right? I love Jimmy for that. Jimmy asks harder questions than anybody I know. And he's made me a better believer because he asks me hard questions, right? That's what discipleship is. It's helping other folks grow. Um, Our job um, is to man the walls with us, right? Um, If you watch your neighbors falling apart, your job is to stand on the walls and guard at your house, right? Because they're your neighbors. I had a pastor tell me I should never work in a, or never work for a church that I couldn't live in the community. Because if you don't live in the community, you're not going to care about the people. You people have lived here forever. Love your neighbors, right? Well, I do love my neighbors. Love is more than a gen- general feeling. Love is actively seeking the well-being of your neighbors, helping them be better. Well, I love them. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to make them uncomfortable. Man, I'll tell you what. There are times in my life folks have made me uncomfortable. And I'm thankful for it, right? I, when I had this, I talked about being adept at lying. And, and twice now I've had people, like early on I had somebody call me out on it. Say, Eric, you know what? This is what's wrong with you. <laughs> yep, you got me. And he helped me get better. Recently, I... I when I plan surprises for my wife, I'm going to put, maybe, I, I sometimes will deceive her a little bit in order to pull off a surprise. And she actually pointed out, you know, I know you're trying to be surprising and romantic, but you do lie when you do that. I do. So now I'm trying not to do that. But you know what? If my wife didn't care enough about me to tell me, I wouldn't do better. 
Um, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I included this for this reason. Um, you people are the stones that make up the church, right? Um, Nehemiah built a wall out of stones. We're building a church out of you because you are living stones. You are carriers of the gospel. You are components that make this happen. Um, and we do it through that process, right? Discipleship, evangelism, learning, growing. Um, this is what we do. This is how we become more. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of the household, his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together um, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So what Paul is telling us here is he's saying, listen, Jesus is the mortar that binds you people together, right? There are people in this room I probably would never have met. No, I definitely would never have met because I wouldn't have come here, right? Um, but there are people in this room that I probably would not hang out with regularly because we're different. Isn't it true? I spend time with you all because we're brothers and sisters. I help people grow in Christ because we're brothers and sisters and neighbors. And like, this is what God has called me to do, and this is why we do it. We're driven by the Holy Spirit and by Jesus. My challenge for you today, um, as we kind of close up here, my challenge for you today is to look at your life and ask yourself, are you doing anything with this? Are you discipling? Are you helping other folks grow? Are you growing yourself? Have you isolated yourself to a degree that you're not? If you go out to my garage, you can slide open the door, and sitting in there, there is weight equipment. I have, I have uh, uh, literally hundreds of dollars worth of weight equipment and tons, in no exaggeration, tons of plates for exercise. And if you walk around in my weight room and you run your hand over the top of everything in there, what will you find? Dust. Why is that? Because I'm not using it. There's a reason I do not look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right? And it's not just this. <laughs> I did hurt my back. Um, is your weight room collecting dust? Is the word collecting dust in your life? Are the things you have learned for years and years and years and years of sitting in a pew, is it collecting dust in your head? Or are you breaking it out and using it? Are you walking with the folks around you, growing and helping them grow? Are you investing yourself in them, pouring your life out as a sacrifice to God to make them better? Or are you coasting along because the project is done, there's no more work to do? I have arrived. I am perfect. And I'm here to make sure all of you know that this is the standard. Not really. But we fool ourselves into believing it. Are you doing the work? Now, mind you, there is one last caveat. This week I went and I got a shot. And I, I, I had to work this in because I was laying on the table getting the shot and I realized this fits. 
I was supposed to get a shot in my spine, and I figured they were going to lay me flat on my face and jab it right in my back and be done, right? And so they had me lay down, and they're like, we're going to give you your first numbing shot. So how many of those are you going to give me? More than a few. I've never counted that high. Doctor said that. And then he jabbed me in my neck, like right here. And I said, hey, that wasn't in my back. I actually said, hey, that wasn't in my back. Are you kind of missing? Are you going to numb all the way around? And he said, no, this is how we're going in. Didn't anyone tell you? What? <laughs> they, they stuck this needle in. They went in about three or four inches, and they stuck the thing in my spine from the side. So, yeah, and that was fun. It really wasn't. I remember as soon as they did that and they explained it to me, I thought in my head, I should probably quit. It's only one shot. I bet it wouldn't cost me that much money. I should get up and leave right now. And then they did another one. And then they did another one. And then they did another one. And I stupidly mentioned, I said, hey, you know, I got stitches a few years ago, and the doctor found out that I, like, numbing agents wear off really quick. And they do. Like, I, I got stitches, and, like, in less than a minute, the numbing agent wore off. And so she stitched me without it. And the guy said, oh, we'll make sure to do extra. <laughs> I feel better. I'm glad I did it. It was hard, right? Connecting with the folks around you, investing in their lives, pouring yourself into other people will hurt sometimes. You will have to say things that are embarrassing, right? I can relate to people who lie because I'm good at it, and I'm running away from that. I want that so bad to not be that guy anymore that I'll, I'll confess it and I'll work on it, right? How bad do you want to be like Jesus? How bad do you want to overcome sin? Are you willing to go through the pain of doing it? And it will not be a cakewalk. It will be hard. Um, my challenge to you this week is consider the cost and do the work. Grow the folks around you. Grow yourself. I'm going to close in prayer, and I won't see you all for two weeks. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just be with us, Lord. Help us to be a, a disciple-making community, Lord. Help us to be people who grow in you by investing in the folks around us. Help us to just help us to become more because your Holy Spirit is growing us through each other. Help us to draw together, um, never to be alone, but to be part of the family of God in this place. And help us to touch this community in a way that could only be your work because we look around and we see folks and we love them and we do the uncomfortable work of of touching their lives. Um, In Jesus' name, amen.